Well, God's called us, gathered us in his name, called into our life to come and bring us to hear the good news of Christ. And as we get ready to do that, ready to worship, let's take a moment of quiet to prepare ourselves to come before God. Call to worship is from Psalm 69. Will you stand with us and we'll sing together. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there is none and for comforters, but I found none. Don't let the flood sweep
my rock, my salvation, and my refuge. The blood may keep on rising, and the sun refuse to shine. His faithfulness will never God has called us to worship. Let's take a moment to pray together. Gracious and merciful God, we gather this morning as your people, as adopted sons and daughters through Christ, and we come to give you worship, Lord, and we come to give you praise for who you are and for what you've done. We hold fast, God, to our identity in you as a people who have not only been created by you, but who have been redeemed by you through Jesus. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would nourish us all by your word and by your spirit this morning. We ask that you would give us, as a church, stronger desires to love you, Lord God, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We give you thanks for those of us, Lord, who are in seasons of rejoicing and in seasons of, of peace. We also acknowledge, God, that some of us are coming in this morning with burdens and weariness from life from this past week. We acknowledge that as our, our psalm has uh, recounted this morning, Lord, that we sometimes feel as if the waters come up to our necks and we sometimes feel as if we are uh, in distress. And so we pray this psalm this morning that you would save us, O oh God, that you would save us uh, from our sin and, and from the troubles that we face. We ask that you would draw near to us, Lord, and redeem us by your word and by your spirit. And God, in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our sins and in our doubts, we know that uh, these things are not the final word in our lives. But we look to Christ, who has been pierced for our transgressions, and upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And it's by this peace that you've brought us here this morning, by your good news. So we give you thanks for these things, for while we are far from you, Lord God, Christ died for us, giving us this peace and giving us access to communion with you. And so, Heavenly Father, the response to these things is worship. So we pray that you would give each one of us hearts and minds of worship to you this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, the children's worship can be dismissed uh, to meet Melinda.
Well, uh, we turn now to our time of confession and to our time of assurance, and it's in this time that we acknowledge our wandering and we acknowledge our rebellion from God while holding fast to the fact that God's grace is always going to be greater than all of our sin. We'll do this together as a church, and then we'll also have a time of silent personal confession. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Let's take a moment of silent personal confession. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the work of Christ and for your ministry of reconciliation to us. For while we were once far off from you, you've brought us near to yourself. We pray that you would increase yourself within us and minister to us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll all stand with me, we'll read our words of assurance uh, together from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen. Well, as God has welcomed us in Christ, let us take a moment to welcome those around us.
It was pretty shoddy wiring. I mean, I guess we should check back there, too. The Old Testament lesson is from Genesis chapter 21, 8 through 21. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman, also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, For she said, 
Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The gospel lesson is from Matthew chapter 10, 24 through 33. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to worship with you and have a chance to look at God's word together. Uh, you'll see in your order that we're going to continue a, a sermon series of looking at the book of Romans from the New Testament. Uh, we're going to look at the first half of chapter 6 uh, this morning. But before I read to you from Romans 6, I want to take a moment just to help set some context and help kind of see where we are in, in the book and uh, what's kind of happening in our passage this morning. Uh, a couple Sundays ago, I asked you to picture... Uh, a new building, uh, a new structure being constructed. A lot happens before you see the, the new structure emerge, that there is digging and there's removing of the old concrete or other obstacles. They're setting up the drainage. There's pouring of a foundation. And in the first four chapters of the book of Romans, Paul, in many ways, is doing this type of foundational work. But in chapters 5 through 8, where we are now, Paul points to a new structure that God has built. A structure that God has built in the person of Christ. And in chapter 5, the last couple Sundays, we learned the nature of this new structure. We were told why we were still sinners, why we were still weak, why we were still stuck under the burden of our shame, our guilt and condemnation. Christ died for us. And therefore, we, all of us, Jew and Gentile, the wise and the fool, why, why we have exchanged the truth of God for lies in God's love, he has declared us fully accepted in Christ and brought us into this new structure. Here in this new house, we have peace with God. We do not stand in our own acceptability, but in God's grace. And we rejoice in hope even in the midst of our suffering. Well, if we continue this image of a new structure, the second half, half of chapter 5, which we looked at last week, reminds us that this story includes leaving an old house, leaving behind an old structure. We move from one structure to another in faith. 
Paul calls this old house the house of Adam, our first father. It was a place of trespass, and as Taylor reminded us last week, it was ordered by the logic of death. Marked by separation with a culture of silence, shame, and fear. In this former house, we're told over and over again, directly and indirectly, you're on your own. and You better fend for yourself. And imagine that all of us in different ways know the experience of such a house. Know the longing for a different place. And despite being told that we are on our own, the gospel of God, which the letter of Romans is all about, the gospel of God proclaims something different. That there's another house, a home built by Jesus, and one that's marked by love and life. And that's the context that leads us to our passage today in chapter 6, in which Paul begins by addressing a criticism, in which way maybe we could paraphrase it by this way, Paul, this all sounds too good to be true. This all sounds too good to be true. You keep talking about grace. You even say that as our sin increases or becomes more clear, that God's grace increases or abounds even further. Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying we should just keep on sinning? Are you saying that we should just keep on living the old ways? And what we'll see is that Paul answers, no, by no means. If we've left the house where sin reigns, if we've left the old house of Adam, how can we keep living as if we still belong there? Don't you remember, don't you realize, we packed up and we left there for good. And now we live in a new home. Therefore, we're to live in a new way, the way of Christ. That leads us to our passage in chapter 6. We'll read this together, in which Paul explains what it is to live in this house as God's people. So this is Romans 6, 1 through 14. You can follow in your order or in your Bible. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, this is God's word given for our good. What shall we say? That's how our passage begins. Should we just keep sinning? Should we keep living the old ways? By no means, by no means, says Paul. We packed up and we left for good and we live in a new home. 
And as we think about that transition, what has happened in God's gift to us, moving from the house of Adam to the house of Jesus, I want us to look at two phrases in our passage that will help us grasp that significance. The, the first phrase being that we were baptized into Christ, and the second, in Christ we died to sin. So let's start with this first one, we were baptized into Christ. The image of leaving one house to move into a new one connects to a central message of not only Romans, but the whole gospel of Christ, that we are not on our own, but that we are united to Christ. Our passage speaks about this, you know, that we came into Christ, that we are being in Christ, that being united to him through different things happening to us. The phrases that you might have picked up as we read, that we were baptized into Christ, baptized into his death, buried with him, united to him, crucified with him, died with Christ, we live with him. All of this language is the language of union. And it tells us that Jesus is our representative. And so in that sense, the, the word Christ, it's helpful for us to think about this, the word Christ is not a name, but a title. Jesus is the Christ. Christ means the anointed king, the one who has come to liberate God's people and to establish God's kingdom. Jesus is the Christ. Therefore, he represents his people. Therefore, what is true of Jesus is true of all of his people. And so we can ask, what is true of Jesus? What is true of the Christ who is our representative? Well, we're told that Christ died. He took upon himself the condemnation and the suffering and consequences of human evil and injustice and sin. He met this tyrant and this tyrant's claim. And he did it once for all. Christ died and he was raised from the dead. And being raised, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It no longer has a claim on him. And so if we ask what is true of Jesus, the Christ, it's that he fully entered death going under its power, but God raised him, demonstrating that the tyrant of sin, that tyrant that holds us down with shame and condemnation, cannot hold Jesus. The tyrant for the first time could not hold what was underneath of it. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus are decisive events. He died once for all. He was raised never to die again. And as a result, he now lives continuously unto God. And what is true of the Christ is equally true of all who are united to the Christ. And so what, what I want us to, to see here is that while Jesus' death and resurrection are historic events, historic facts, they are also personal experiences for you and for me. What I mean that is that through faith, we share in them ourselves. We died with Christ and we will rise with him. To talk about this sharing, our passage describes it this way. We were baptized into Christ. That's how our passage, that's how Paul describes this union, this being connected to his death and resurrection as our representative. You see, all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. We have to keep remembering that opening question. Should we just keep living the old ways? Should we just keep living the old ways? By no means we packed up, we've left that place for good, and we live in a new house. And so I want us to think in this image of baptism as our moving day. <laughs> it 
baptism as our moving day. Not, not a moving day. Maybe you've had this experience that it's super stressful and they got to load the U-Haul in a certain limit of time. And the last time I drove a U-Haul, I backed into a stop sign, got a ticket for that. Moving days can be stressful. So not that part, but baptism as our moving day with the idea is that we've leaving behind a place of unease, a place of condemnation, a place that we did not want to be. To go to a new house, a place of joy and of welcome, a place that we can stay and rest. Baptism is being described here as our moving day. When one is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit with water, he or she publicly identifies with Christ and with Christ's people. He or she publicly announces a new address. This is where I belong. This is where I live. I'm not on my own. I'm with Christ. I'm united with Christ. I'm at home with Christ and his people. Of course, water does not have the power to wash away our sins. Water does not have the power to free us from all that holds us. Water does not have the power to give us new life. But the water of baptism, this public event, points to a spiritual reality. It points to the power of God at work in the gospel, that through the Spirit, God unites all who believe, all who believe in Christ. They are united to Christ. And what is true of Christ is true of all who are united to him. Therefore, baptism is this outward sign, things that we can see with our, our eyes and even touch the water. It points to a work of the Spirit. It proclaims in Christ's death, we have left the old house of Adam where sin reigns. It proclaims Christ's resurrection, that Jesus has welcomed us into new life, into a new family, into a new home. See, baptism proclaims the change of our address and what we've been trying to see over and over again after these weeks that the, the, the letter of Romans has been proclaiming through the gospel is that grace met us where we were whether it's in your shame and covered with guilt or whether it's in the brokenness of this life and the loneliness of facing it by yourself Grace meets us where we are, not to tell us that everything's fine or that we're fine or that these difficulties are no big deal. Grace meets us where we are to rescue us, to move us, to take us somewhere new. That We belong in the house of God through Christ. Paul, you talk too much about grace. That's what the criticism was. You're, you're, are you saying that we should just keep living the old ways, that we should just keep sinning so that we can keep talking about grace? No. If we've left the house where sin reigns, how can we keep living as if we still belong to that old house? We packed up and left for good. As we think about leaving this old house for a new one, the first way to think about this is that we were baptized into Christ, our representative, who acted for us. And the second phrase, second thing for us to consider is that in Christ, we died to sin. In Christ, we died to sin. So what, what does that mean? What does it mean that in Christ, we died to sin? Well, let's, let's start with what it does not mean. It does not mean that we no longer experience temptation. It does not mean that Christians are somehow immune to the power or influence of sin. You see, actually, our passage closes with an exhortation to offer every part of ourselves to God, not to sin or unrighteousness or injustice, there would be no need for such exhortations in our passage or throughout the scriptures, no need for such things if Christians no longer struggled with sin. Another way to say this in the, the image that we've been looking at through this sermon 
is that the culture or the influence of the old house, the ways of Adam remain active in us. We know what this is like. We know this. The ways of the old family, the old address, are hard to cast off and hard to leave behind. So what does it mean to die to sin? In our passage, we read that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be in bondage to sin. The body of sin here is not a reference to our physical body. Rather, it speaks to our state of being held down. It speaks to being unable to get out on our own from sin's tyranny with its burden of shame and guilt and condemnation. This charge, you are a sinner. You have not done what you're supposed to do. You've done what you were not to do. We can't get out from under it. We cannot get out on our own. But God has acted in the cross of Jesus to break this tyranny over us, to break the hold that it has, to break its claim on us. In Christ, we die to sin means a change of status. It doesn't mean that we never feel temptation any longer or feel the influences of the house of Adam, but it's a change of status that we no longer are located, as our passage says, in sin. We're no longer located under the reign of sin. Sin is therefore no longer our master, no longer the tyrant that gets to hold us down and tell us who we are. Because no longer are we under law, but we are under the grace of God. Therefore, to say that we have died to sin in Christ means sin can no longer tell us how to live, no longer tell us who we are or who we are not. After all, we're no longer living under this old tyrant's roof, for we've moved to a new house. We've been brought into the family of Jesus and given a new status. And that's why our passage ends the way that it does. As those who've been brought from death to life, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness or injustice, but offer every part of yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. This imagery of this verse the idea of instruments actually has a military connotation to it. You can imagine you know, all who would live in a certain house or in a certain village or community, a certain kingdom, they might be called to bring all of their tools, all kind of equipment that they have to the hands of their leader so that these instruments can be forged into weapons. It's a rallying cry to bring your instruments to defend or fight on behalf of this place, to sharpen them, present whatever you have as weapons for the fight. And it's a chance for us to remember in the old house, under the reign of sin, we learn to use whatever we have to fend for ourselves. Gather as much as you can Keep certain people away. Don't let down your guard. But in our new house, the house of Jesus, there's a different leader, a different way. And in the vision of God's covenant over and over again in Scripture, there's this wonderful vision in which we bring our instruments to God. We bring our equipment, we bring all of our stuff to God, not to sharpen them, but the reverse, to beat our swords into plows, to beat our spears into spades, to no longer wound our neighbor, but to cultivate life. This is the way of the household of God. 
And so as we close, I want us to imagine one final thing. Imagine that you lived in a place with a very difficult owner or difficult landlord. Maybe for some of you, that's not too hard to imagine. But you find a new place. You pack up your stuff and you move. But even though you've moved, this strange thing happens that the previous owner, the previous landlord keeps coming by and talking to you. Saying you might have moved out, but we know who you really are. You might have changed address, but that doesn't mean you no longer have to fend for yourself, that you aren't on your own. You might have moved, but you need to remember how this world really works. The reign of sin will tell you and make us feel like we must rely on ourselves, that we are alone. The reign of sin will tell us over and over again the only way to make it in this life is to gather as much as you can, to indulge your physical appetites, to separate yourself from those who are costly or difficult or different, to hide or deny any weakness. And if you don't live like this, you will never be happy, never be successful. And so what do we say to this old landlord, this old owner? The gospel invites you and me in Christ to say, I have a new home. I have a new home. And Jesus has welcomed me in. And this new home was under the reign of grace, so it is different. I and everyone else who enters, we don't stand on our strength. We don't have a place because of our hierarchy or class or wealth or education or whatever core it is that we choose to wrap our lives around. We stand in the grace of Christ. For in this house, this house is the place that God fully accepts the ungodly, who justifies the weak, and so I'm going to present myself, all of myself, to this God. I'm going to give all of who I am to the one who has loved me, that I may love my neighbor and love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you for who you are. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, that you would meet us here by your spirit, and through your word, that you would strengthen us, that you would nourish us, that you'd help us to remember who we are in Christ, to be able to say no to the reign of sin and yes, to live under the reign of grace. We give you thanks for your work in our life and we pray that we'd find rest and hope in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.
God, you have established us in Christ, and by your Spirit have put your seal on us. We rest in your faithfulness as we join with your people on earth and all the company of heaven in the unending Having heard God's word, we're now invited to the table that God sets for his people. This table is a gift from God that allows us to see and to hold and to taste what the kingdom of God is like, what God is like. And uh, God gives this to us so that we can know what his household is like, for this is the family meal of God. And when we are invited to the table, it reminds us that our place at the table or where we stand is not of what we've done or what we will do, but our place has been secured for us by the grace of Christ from beginning to end. This table is set for sinners. This table also invites us, as those who have been welcomed by God's grace, to learn what it is to offer grace to others, to one another here, and to love our neighbors as we go forth in Christ's name. So if you know of your need that you cannot stand in yourself or cannot get out from under the burden or the tyrant on your own, if you know that and you've placed your hope in Christ, then come eat and drink for this table belongs to Christ and it's for all who are part of his household. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, let this table be a witness to you that tell you the nature of this house and let it be an invitation to come and stand in the grace that God offers. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, that you are a God that's good and faithful, who in your grace meets us in our sin. Lord, I pray as we come forth that you would offer this bread and cup, and that by your spirit that you would strengthen us, that you would nourish us, that you would meet us in our place of weakness, that we would be propped up by your strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Invite those who are serving to come forward and stand here in front of the table. If you are participating in communion uh, today, I invite you to come down the center aisle and receive the bread and the cup, and you can go back on the sides. Also, if you're able to hold the elements, I ask that you would hold them to everyone's been served, that we can eat and drink as one family. If you're not participating in communion today, we're, we're glad that you're here, and we can still invite you to come forward. Just put your arm across your chest, and we'll offer a prayer of blessing and peace for you here at the table.
Christ's body was broken to make us whole. Let us eat in faith. And Christ's blood was shed to cover all of our sins. Let us drink in faith. In response to this table of grace, I invite you to stand that we can pray and sing as God's people. Lord Jesus Christ, give us peace and help us to trust you as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue our, uh, our worship through giving our gifts to, to God and to work of the church, as responding to God's generosity. Uh, so I want to invite forward uh, the greeters who are uh, collecting the offering. You'll see in your order that you can give, if you'd like to give uh, to the church, you can do so through the offering plate, or you can do it by uh, online uh, or by text as well. Um, I guess I should mention there is a gray basket where you can put your, your communion cup in the gray basket, and the silver plate is for the offering. Uh, also, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, first, I should say, if you're visiting, glad that you joined us today. Thanks for being here. It's great to have you as part of the worship time. Uh, if you would like to share your information to, to learn more about the church, there is a, a QR code in the, the back of your order. You can just fill out the Connect card online. Uh, or there is a, a, a pad in the back on the welcome table. You can fill out your name and email, and, and Pastor Brian or I would be happy to touch base and share the weekly email with you as well. Uh, a couple of reminders that if you are interested in uh, being part of the Thanksgiving basket day of service for water, so you can stop by the back table to get a basket and a tag and sign that out. Uh, and the other thing just to mention is that there is our intro to LSBC lunch today. Uh, I know a number of you are coming. Uh, if you uh, didn't have a chance to RSVP or if this is, you're just here and want to join us for lunch as you started coming, uh, please let me know. It would be great to have you. We're at the community space over on Rockwell. The information's in the order and we'll meet there to talk about the church's beliefs and vision and kind of what it means to be part of the church community. Well, let's continue giving our gifts uh, to the work of God.
God's blessing. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, may the love of God surround you now and always. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.